I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I mean chapter 2. Just waste my good material. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 12 on the man of lawlessness this evening. As we come to read God's holy word and hear it preached, would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we ask that the same Spirit who breathed this word would now indwell us and illumine us to understand what he has written, that he would write this word upon our hearts, and that we would not give ourselves to speculation surrounding the return of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, but that we would, by your grace alone, be grounded in the truth of your word, and so, again, by your grace alone, avoid the deception of the evil one and all his servants. Be with us now, work in every heart and every case of conscience to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ our, Christ our Savior, those who do know him and look for his glorious appearance and for those who do not know Him, that they would be awakened by Your Word and Spirit, and so take hold of Him by faith. All this we ask, pleading the forgiveness of our sins, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Now would you stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As Paul comes to this point in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, he writes to correct a misunderstanding that was circulating in the church at this point. The Thessalonians had a wrong impression about the return of Christ. 
And I hope you remember the strong impression and the, the much attention that Paul gave of Christ's return in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. There he describes what will take place when Christ returns in glory. When Christ returns, it will be a public and loud event. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And he goes on to say that those who have died in the Lord will be raised, that the dead in Christ will rise first. So the return of Christ in glory is central in Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. But at some, at somehow at some point between his writing the first epistle and the second one, there was the circulation of a false teaching regarding Christ's return. That false teaching was this, that Christ had, in fact, already returned, that the day of the Lord had already taken place. So Paul writes here at this point in his epistle to correct that false teaching. And we should see just from that survey that it is of the utmost importance for the believer and for the whole church of the Lord Jesus to get rid of all known false teaching. Sinclair Ferguson says that, speaking of the, of the first generation of the church, this is a standing principle in the New Testament church. They did not fear martyrdom, they did fear false teaching. So for those who love the Lord Jesus, for those who love His truth, being put to death in faithful service to Him is preferable to being led astray by false teaching. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, and I paraphrase him here, that martyrdom cannot destroy a Christian believer. False teaching can destroy an entire Christian church. So again, it is vital that the church of the Lord Jesus remove the cancer of false teaching so that she may be whole and healthy. And Paul drives home this main idea in this passage, that Christ has not returned yet, but he will destroy all the forces of evil when he does return. And he unpacks this main idea, first of all, saying that Christ's return has not occurred. He unpacks that in verses 1 and 2. Here, Paul begins his response to the false teaching that had been circulating, debunking the myth that Christ's return had indeed already taken place. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So in other words, the glorious return of Christ that I wrote about in my first epistle and in the opening of this epistle, that has not yet taken place. The consummation is still future. Christ has yet to return. And we should emphasize that this is a, a false teaching that Paul was combating, not unique to the first century church. This is something we find in all ages of, of the church until Christ's return. The false notion that that the return of Christ and the resurrection of all men has already taken place in some sense. Back in 1914, the leader of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a, a non-Christian cult, claimed that Christ's final coming had already occurred invisibly on October 1st of that year. That, of course, denies the, the loud and the public nature of Christ's return that we just heard of from 1 Thessalonians 4. And so, of course, it's necessary for each generation, 
for ours, just as much for Paul's, to, to weed out all false teaching, particularly the end of, regarding the, the end of history as we read of it here. So Paul mentions how, how that false teaching, how the, the false teaching that the day of the Lord has already taken place, how that has impacted the church here at the beginning of verse 2. At the beginning of verse 2, he says there that we are not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Literally, don't be disturbed, don't be frightened. That's the effect that false teaching has upon the church. It, it unsettles believers, it disturbs them, it frightens them, and that is one reason why it must be corrected. So introducing this, this portion of the epistle, he's saying the, the day of the Lord has not yet taken place, it is yet future, don't believe this false teaching, rather persevere in what is true. And that leads Paul secondly to point out some things that must precede Christ's return there in verses 3 and 4. Interestingly, Paul does not just tell the Thessalonians at this point, no, remember what I've already said about the return of the Lord. He introduces more teaching about Christ's return to debunk this false teaching. He gets more specific in correcting that false teaching. And we see there in verse 3, there are two things that must take place prior to Christ's return. Two things that I think take place together, not one after the other. Let's look again at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So two things must take place before Christ's return. The rebellion, as he puts it here, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So let's look at the first thing he mentions, the first precursor to Christ's return. He says what must take place is the rebellion. Literally there, the apostasy must take place. So prior to Christ's return, there will be a wide-scale compromise within the church. There will be a rebellion. That rebellion will be a religious rebellion. For some reason, there, there is the, the, the common teaching that this, this rebellion is a reference to a secret rapture before Christ's return. There is nothing about a secret rapture here or in any other passage of this, of this epistle or throughout the, the rest of the New Testament. The better you know what the Bible says about the end of history, the better you know that dispensationalism gets it wrong. The rebellion here is a large-scale departure from the faith. And that departure from the faith takes place within the community of faith, within the covenant of grace. That is one of the things that must take place prior to Christ's return, a wide-scale apostasy. So Paul's point here is that this has not happened yet. We know that Christ has not returned because the apostasy has not taken place yet. And coincident with that apostasy, there's a second thing that must take place prior to Christ's return. Again, there in verse 3 the man of lawlessness will be revealed. The systematic theologian in me almost broke out in hives this week trying to think about how to prepare to preach this passage because there is so much written on it, even within our own Reformed tradition, over who the man of lawlessness is and who the restrainer in verses 6 and 7 is. A lot of ink has been spilled discussing the identity of these things, namely and specifically the man of lawlessness. And passages like this one remind us of Peter's words 
at the end of his second epistle. In, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. should be comforting that an apostle thought that the writings of another apostle were difficult in places. So passages like this one remind us of the historical distance between Paul and the Thessalonians and us today. Of course, we don't have the, the liberty of having personal contact with Paul like the Thessalonians did. There was personal contact between Paul and this church before he wrote this letter. Paul taught the Thessalonians things that we now do not know about. And we, we see in this passage that he refers to the things he taught them when he was with them. And those things we don't know about. We only know what we have before us in, in, in the actual epistles to the Thessalonians. So certain things may have been clear to the Thessalonians when they received this letter. Oh yeah, that's what Paul said when he was with us. We don't have those things. Gerhardus Voss talks about the, the identity of the man of lawlessness in, in his book, The Pauline Eschatology. And he spends about 40 pages discussing who this mysterious figure could be. And you're, you're reading through, and he says, it can't be this person because of these reasons, it can't be that person because of those reasons, and it can't be this other person for these other reasons. And you finally get to the end of the chapter, and you're waiting for him to tell you who's the man of sin, who's the man of lawlessness. And finally, he concludes the chapter saying, in so many words, the best interpretation of this will be its fulfillment. And that's something we should... We should delight to know that we don't have every detail that we might want to have about God's Word, but what we do have is sufficient. We're not going to know every single detail about all the events surrounding Christ's return, but God has given us all we need to know in His Word. We have a sufficient revelation from God in His infallible Word. So what, what can we say about the man of lawlessness, the identity of this figure? And here I'm leaning very heavily on, on Greg Beale. The man of lawlessness here is also known as the Antichrist, spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament. Look there again at the, at the description of the man of lawlessness, uh, beginning in the middle of, of verse 3. The, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So it's clear from this description that this figure, this man of lawlessness, opposes God. He, he, is, he is in opposition to the Lord Jesus. He wants the worship that belongs to God alone for himself. And so you can see that, that we should see this man, this man of lawlessness, as the Antichrist. This description of, of him here is very similar to how John speaks of the spirit of Antichrist in his epistles. John, in 1 John chapter 2, says, Who is the liar but he, do, he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So we can say, even from this brief survey, that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is a liar. He is the one who denies the one true God, and he wants worship for himself, worship that belongs to the one true God alone. And you may be aware that there have been quite a few attempts throughout the history of the church to identify the Antichrist more specifically than this. Some say that the Antichrist is, is Nero, the Roman emperor who persecuted the church and killed Christians. 
Some say that, that the Pope of Rome, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, is the Antichrist. Now, I'll just say briefly as a side note, and we'll unpack this in, in detail, but it, it is biblical. It is biblical and, and proper to speak of many antichrists, plural, and the one antichrist. So in light of that distinction, it is perfectly acceptable. It is right to say that Nero and the Pope of Rome are antichrists. We should say that. Anyone who persecutes the church and kills Christians, as Nero did, is an antichrist. Anyone who leads people astray with idolatry and false teaching, like the Pope does, is an antichrist. It is perfectly acceptable to speak of those who stand up against the Lord Jesus and his truth as the spirit of antichrist. I remember a few years ago, at the beginning of our marriage, Ellie asked me if I knew who Bart Ehrman was. And I thought, how am I going to describe Bart Ehrman briefly? He, he teaches New Testament. He doesn't teach the New Testament. He teaches religion, I think, at UNC. Moody Bible graduate, ex-fundamentalist who wants to undo the faith of college freshmen, really rock their world and make them to disbelieve the, the New Testament scriptures. As I, I was thinking, how do I describe this person? How do I describe Bart Ehrman? And I realized he is an antichrist. Such who want to undo the faith of college freshmen, who want to un undermine the scriptures, those are the spirit of antichrist. So with all that in mind, we're, we're not talking about antichrists in general. We're talking about this one figure, about who the one antichrist is. Well, I take the interpretation that the antichrist is a real individual who will lead the church in a great apostasy at the end of this age. More than that, I don't think we should, we should guess any further. So what, what Paul is speaking of here about the revelation of the man of lawlessness and the apostasy in the church at the end before Christ returns, he's speaking of the fulfillment of what is described in Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel 11, we read that there will be a final enemy of God who will attack the people of God. He will influence God's people to forsake the covenant. He does that within the covenant community. And those, those who remain loyal to God's covenant, this antichrist will persecute. And that, I think, is what Paul is getting at here in verse 4 when he says that the man of lawlessness takes his seat in the temple of God. Not a literal rebuilding of Solomon's temple, but the Antichrist leading God's people, the church, in a great apostasy. And, and the work of that Antichrist will be the fulfillment of what we read in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, speaking of, of this man of lawlessness. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. So Paul is describing the fulfillment of, of the old covenant scriptures just before the return of Jesus Christ. So again, these are the two precursors before Christ's return. The, 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 the apostasy, coincident with the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the, the Antichrist. And again, remember, the best interpretation of many of these things will be their fulfillment. 
Our job is not to try and guess who the Antichrist could be now, could be this person, could be that person. There have been some attempts to say it's Ronald Reagan because Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666, six letters in each of those names. That is not our job to try and figure out who he could be. It's not our job to figure out if the rebellion's already started. Is there, enough to, is there enough apostasy to constitute a great rebellion? Our job is to be grounded in the truth, which is Paul's whole point in this passage. Be grounded in the truth so that false teaching will not lead us astray. And thirdly and finally, this leads Paul to, to hammer that home further, to stand firm against the spirit of Antichrist. He unpacks this further in, in verse 5, essentially saying, Remember what I've already taught you. Remember what you've already been taught. Look look how he puts it in in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Apparently, Paul already covered these things about the apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist when he was physically present with them. And obviously, they needed to be reminded of those things, which is why he's writing of them here at this point in the epistle. He's saying, remember, we've already covered this. We covered this when we were together. And of course, we are, we are no different. We, we need to be reminded constantly of the truth, just as much as, as this first century church did. We so easily forget. False teaching will find a home in the places where truth is easily forgotten. Just this morning in the Christian Education Hour, I was speaking with the senior high about ultimate authority. Who is the ultimate authority of mankind, who, who knows what is best for us, and who is ultimately trustworthy. And we covered that there are only two answers to that question. Either you are your own ultimate authority, or God is your, own, is your ultimate authority. And we all live our lives believing that we are that authority, trying to live life on our terms, when actually it is the, it is the one true God who is in authority over us. And as I said this morning, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. You'll hear it a million more times. But don't ignore it. Don't don't let it it, it run off you like water off a duck's back. Let it sink in. So we all need the constant reminder of the truth, even though we already know it in some sense. And Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7, emphasizing that even though the Antichrist has not yet appeared, he can still deceive The spirit of Antichrist can still deceive even though he has not come on the scene yet. And here Paul speaks of that restraining force upon the man of sin before he's revealed. Similar to what we we read in Revelation chapter 20 of of, of Satan being bound now between Christ's first and second comings. We read there in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great, dra- a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while." So it's not entirely clear who or what this restraining force is upon the man of sin in, in the meantime before, before he's released. That restraining force could be the Holy Spirit, could be an angel of God, it could be the, the preaching of the gospel. I think those are all 
all acceptable interpretations. But what is clear is that God is ultimately behind the current restraint of the Antichrist. It is, it is God who restrains him ultimately. So Paul is encouraging the church, he's encouraging us now to stand firm in the truth and to do so now, not just when the man of sin is revealed. As Greg Beale notes in his commentary, the, the antidote to the poison of the Antichrist deception is remembering and believing what God has said. And then from verses 8 through 12, Paul emphasizes that we need to stand firm now to avoid judgment later. Only if we stand firm now will we avoid judgment later. And finally, we come to see the, the work of, of redemption by the Lord Jesus in relation to the Antichrist there in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the Antichrist will come. He will deceive many in the church. He will lead that great apostasy. He will seek worship for himself that belongs to the one true God alone. But Christ will let him work only for so long. And when, when Christ does come to destroy him with the breath of his mouth, we will see the fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 4, speaking of the Lord Jesus coming in his glory, that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And unfortunately, we will see also the havoc that will be wrought by the Antichrist when he is revealed there beginning in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice here that, that Paul connects the work of Satan and the, and the Antichrist with the response of unbelievers. Unbelievers are truly deceived by Satan and, and, the, and the man of lawlessness, but unbelievers also respond positively to that deception. He, said, he says there again in verse 10 that those who are perishing are deceived. They're deceived by Satan and, and his servant, the Antichrist. But look, look again how he puts it in verse 10 that those who are perishing are deceived. Why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. If you do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, when the man of lawlessness is revealed, you will welcome him with open arms. You will not want him to, to go away. You will welcome him openly and lovingly. This shows the horror of our sin apart from Christ. And this amazing, mysterious union of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is unpacked further in verses 11 and 12. Again, Paul says that it is God who sends the delusion upon those who do not trust in Christ. Those, that spirit of, of delusion comes from God. So the ultimate reason people will believe the lies of Satan, of, of the man of lawlessness, is because God sovereignly sends them that strong delusion. But look at what Paul says about them at the end of verse 12, that they had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
God sends them the delusion, and they love it. No one who is outside of Christ wants the truth. No one who is outside of Christ wants righteousness. No one outside of Christ wants Christ. You want what is false. You desire unrighteousness. You have pleasure in it. You want that delusion. You want to be deceived by the the man of lawlessness. You want to be part of that apostasy. You will welcome him with open arms. And uh, explaining this this mysterious union of the activity of Satan in in deceiving, of of God sending the delusion, and of the response of unbelievers in that day before Christ returns, Herman Boving says so well and so helpfully that God gives people up to sin and delusion because they have made themselves deserving of it. So the hard truth that we see here is that unbelievers not only get what they deserve, they get what they want. And you know, if, if, you are, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you know that deep down that it is insincere to complain, how can God punish anyone? Because you don't want to live your life in subjection to him. You don't want to serve and please him. You only want to serve and please yourself. Ultimately, you have no argument with God for punishing you for rebelling against him. It is what you deserve. And more than that, it is what you desire. And truly, as, as you would find out if you did receive it, you don't really, truly want it. Deep down, you know you are not living as you were made to live. You know that, as Augustine said, you are restless until you find your rest in the Lord Jesus alone. Well, it, it is a sad note to end on, but it is the note that Paul ends on in this passage. Even though it is a sad note to end on, it is a true and sobering one. Let every heart prepare and take these things to heart. And I have just one point of application, which is this whole passage is just a variation on this theme, and that is to ground yourself in the truth. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, you have perfect revelation from God right here in his word, in this portion of scripture, what your fate will be. You will be deceived by the lawless one at his coming, whoever he is, it will be obvious, and you will be deceived by him, and you will be destroyed with him when Christ, when Christ comes in glory. But the way of escape is simple, and it is held out to you now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved now and forever. And especially for you, for, for the believer, the best way, the best way to stand firm against what is false is to be grounded in what is true. Apparently, the way those who, those who look out for counterfeit currency, the way they train their eye to notice what is counterfeit is not to get every instance of counterfeit bills that they've ever come across, and well, they all look like this, so we'll just look for something like this when a new counterfeit bill comes across. The way they train themselves to, to understand and to identify what is false is to be familiar with the real thing. Study the real bill. Study the real currency, and you'll be able to, to identify any counterfeit, any, any false currency. If you are not grounded in the truth, you will be deceived. So it's very simple. Know God's word. Know your catechism. 
It, the, the, the catechism will take you very far. It is, your, it, is your, it is your roadmap through all of life based upon God's Word. Think of how Satan deceived Adam and Eve before the fall. They were not even sinners. And how easy was it for Satan to deceive them? How much more do we need to give ourselves to being grounded in the truth to, be, to avoid being deceived by the evil one? This passage should cause us to marvel at the wisdom of God at Christ's return. Who could ever imagine a, a set of circumstances like this one? Who would ever come up with the revelation of a, of a man of sin and a, a great apostasy in Christ's church right before Christ's return? Only in his perfect wisdom could God have decreed such a, a set of circumstances. Satan and the Antichrist are counterfeits of the one true God, but they do not act independently of the one true God. God sovereignly restrains this man of sin, and he releases and destroys him all to display his wisdom and glory and power. As Luther says in his, in his famous hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Yes, Satan and the man of lawlessness are fearful, formidable enemies of God's people, but they are still creatures. They are creatures of God. They can do nothing except what God wills and allows them to do in his appointed time. And they can only do what God in his perfect wisdom has decreed that they will do. And they can do only so much. God has them on his leash, restraining and releasing them as he pleases. And it is only by being grounded in the truth now that we will avoid their deception later and be gathered together with Christ at his glorious return. Well, in light of reading about the sad reality of apostasy within the church of Christ, I think we should respond as a church now with a big, hearty, Amen. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.